Hey, Pooches. Hey. <laughs> now the world knows your real name. That is true. That is true. Now, uh, all, all the credibility that I've built so far is just like Thanos snapped, disintegrated. So. Exactly. But, but today is October 1st. You know what that means? It is. It's, uh, it's spooky season. It's spooky season. So this is our first pumpkin spice podcast. <laughs> I'm actually like that joke. I can retire from a Starbucks. Yeah. 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 How, how's your week been? Oh man. Uh, a lot of very interesting things. I think, you know, did a lot of planning for the, for, for, you know, what abstract kind of needs to do till the end of the year. Um, tons of in-person meetings, surprisingly, because of a lot of things that have been going on internally. And, uh, um, it's been nice, like putting that manager hat on and like driving to meetings and stuff has always, it's given a sense of like, um, what you're working on is kind of real, but, uh, I kind of miss the days where I could just lock myself in a dark room and just code for hours. I mean, you still do that, but okay. Yeah. But now it's more of like a side project leisure time. Not, not a, not, not a startup driven purpose, but right, right. I will be heading back into that soon. So that's, I'm, I am looking forward to that. <laughs> fun i have completely blown off all of my worldly responsibilities to watch squid games <laughs> i have heard so much about squid game like every single stand-up we have is like squid squid whatever the hell i can't even say the thing anymore but um yeah i how, how is it what is it like i'm very curious about it yeah i mean look I'm, we're not going to spoil so don't um kill your podcasts everyone listening but uh, the premise is people who are very deeply in debt have to play this game to get out of it. And the game has some very interesting rules. That's all I'm going to say. Um, I think, mm -hmm. I, I mean, it's obvious from the trailers that it's, it's bloody. But uh, mm -hmm. you know what's funny? This reminds me of a conversation we had a long time ago. Do you remember when the, I said mutual combat between two consenting adults should be absolutely legal? Right? Have oh, the right, rules right, governed yeah, yeah. by you know, some new Geneva Convention of some kind for like one-on-one -on -one combat. And so long as there are no externalities uh, and no one else is harmed, they should be able to kick the shit out of each other. No? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think I think there's so much that could be avoided if if that was enabled. Honestly, there, there's this one um, village in Peru that still does this. Like every day at the end of the year, um, everyone who's ever had a some sort of beef just get together, fight it out, and then they have dinner, and that's it. That's the end of it. And they'd like leave that shit in the in the old year when welcome in the new year. I, I kind of love that idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would pay money to see um, Brian Armstrong and the head of the SEC kind of go at it in a ring. <laughs> it would be nice. That is true. That that would be very fun. Yeah. Or just Yeah, speaking of, of, of paying to see it, I mean, by extension, if, if we're going to go that route and have two consenting parties uh, consenting to a fight be legal, then, um, I, I mean, I should be able to watch, right? I mean, how is that any different from like UFC, but with amateurs and you know, everyone gets to make a little money, right? It's legal to play, you know, football in the NFL and give yourself CTE and go nuts by the time you're 50. But you know, somehow if you know, you include a ring and a couple cameras, it becomes illegal. Who decided, who decided that? I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, it's very crazy. It's, I mean, the amount of money that can be made off of it is also very, very nice. And like pretty much what you're doing is you're you're pretty if 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 powerful enough people actually get into this and duke it out you can avoid so many sorts of like wars and other illegal shit that's been going on okay i, I don't even know if you're kidding anymore but whatever you just said <laughs> it's dad is very proud mom is very concerned right right i uh, i think 
if 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 the startup continues to get crazy the startup stuff continues to get crazier i might run for president on that on that topic but we'll we'll, we'll see oh i have some friends in moscow you should speak to anyways um, <laughs> oh, by the way b- before we move on from this topic this is very very true because of squid game um uh, SK Broadband, which is like a South Korean ISP, is actually suing Netflix for compensation for all the network traffic and the trouble that's caused. Uh, apparently, they're looking for 27 billion won, um, which is like Jeez. 22 million dollars. And uh, I don't know. You know, there there are some reports that, wow. that uh, Netflix can't pay it, and uh, Reed Hastings is going to have to join the Squid Game to uh, pay off his debt. <laughs> that would be. I mean, yeah, that that would make the problem even worse because then. That that broadband company is definitely going to crash. Well, yeah, I mean, probably, but isn't that like a wonderful problem yeah. to have? Like, hey, you know, broadband in a in a developed country went down because my my game, it, my, I mean, my my show is just so wildly successful. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel like that's a uh, if if there's an, ever a sign that you're out of startup mode and you're actually a corporation, it's that it's 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 when ISPs just simply crash because they can't handle your traffic. First of all, what what are like? I, I feel like the 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 director of engineering or like CTO of Netflix must have like such a good day today. He's like, I built something so good that we like our services went down, and it's not even my problem. <laughs> it's, it's the ISPs issue. Yeah, it's. I mean, gone are the days where you can blame them for literally anything, unless you're in a place with some shitty, uh, shitty traffic. But uh, I mean, shitty. Uh, uh, internet infrastructure where it can't handle any traffic, but yeah. Anyways, twenty-two million dollars actually doesn't sound uh, that bad in terms of goofs compared to some other stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah, because I, I mean the timing was perfect because at the same time, what was basically flooding my timeline was what I like to call the ninety million dollar bug. So basically, what happened is is there's a staking protocol company called Compound Finance, and in an update gone horribly wrong. Um, almost $90 million worth of comp, which is the protocol's native token, um, was sent out to all of its users uh, on its network, and it sent the token's price plunging 13%. So the, the most important part, the most like interesting part of this was um, Robert Leshner, Leshner, can't really pronounce his last name, uh, who's the founder of this company, um, basically sent out a pre- plea to users asking them to return at least 90% of what they were sent keeping 10 as like a white hat or as a tip. Um, but what's very interesting is that he said, for those who don't return the tokens, they're going to have their earnings reported to the IRS's income and they'll be doxxed, which is a very interesting thing for a founder of an actual business to say. And you have to think, you know, this is, this is a company that's funded by Coinbase Ventures, Andreessen Horowitz, so many other notable VC firms. Um, the, the main question that I have basically is if you were an investor in their shoes, an investor of a company like that, and you saw the founder, um, handling a situation like a, a, a day zero type situation like this, what would you expect out of a reaction or, or if a founder reacts kind of in a more dictator ish way, is that, do you think that that's justified and, and what do basically what do founders do in situations like this i mean because because at the same time everything's on fire you need to put it out but at, at on the other hand um you just you have to act professional which is very difficult i feel like there was some kind of diplomatic approach they could have gone with first before i'll fucking dox you bro like if you have if you have 
I mean, the data to dox them, then you have the data to reach out to them and kind of politely ask like, hey, you know, we had a little goof and we'd appreciate it if you can help us reverse this, you know, as opposed to just yeah. blasting social media with, I'm going to take you down, bro. Come at me, bro. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, I think that's just one of the signs of like a very, very early industry that, that that professionalism isn't there yet. It just needs a bit more adoption to get there. But yeah, until then, it's, it's, it's very much a, a, a dog eat dog type industry. Yeah. Then again, you know, it's crypto where like, you know, when money had, and to be clear, I'm very, very bullish on crypto, but when, when mm -hmm. money disappears, like, you know, some Mt. Gox or other exchanges or, or, you know, custodial wallets issues, you know, it, it's when it's gone, it's gone. Right. And, and mm -hmm. the business typically goes with it. Uh, and the founder is done for, um, and especially true for like the, you know, smaller, uh, kind of crypto players who don't really make headlines usually. Um, so I, I can kind of understand why they would go super aggressive and super public at first, just to make it clear, like, yo, we are not going to be another one of those stories. We know who you are, uh, do the right thing or else dun, 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 but you know, right. Um, yeah, you know, it's startups, they do have damage control plans for, you know, in case, uh, unforeseen hairy situations come up, but I actually learned firsthand how, uh, how this can be a touchy subject. Uh, I wish I could say it was as a founder, but believe it or not, the precursor to this podcast, and I don't know, this may be the first time you're hearing this, but the, the precursor to this right. podcast was actually a show about, um, you know, what goes wrong at a venture back startup. And, uh, it, it turns out this industry, you know, quietly buries its dead for a reason. These stories can be really damaging. They can, they can hurt your clout, so they can hurt your, uh, fundraising chances, depending on when you disclose them and when you're currently, uh, <laughs> when, when, when you're currently, uh, involved with the startup, it's, they don't want to talk about it. And, uh, uh, so I'm guessing, and I, I'm going to give this founder the benefit of the doubt and, and say, he just went super aggressive. So that's, so that this does not become more of a news story and more of a, you know, uh, you know, it's bad press. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think they, you know, I'm, I'm definitely on the same page that in my opinion, at least looking at it from a first time founder's perspective, um, I totally get it if founders who are in the middle of firefighting and putting out massive fires on this scale, don't talk about it. But maybe after an exit or after that period of time in the startup's life gets, you know, is over with, um, I don't see an issue like talking about it because if anything, it's more of a compliment to your skills as a founder. You're like, we went through this horrible time and yet we're still here and we're growing and we're doing blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, but it, it also enough time needs to pass, you know, like a lot of time needs to pass. Yeah. Like Max Levchin didn't start talking about the unbelievable amounts of fraud that were happening in PayPal and, you know, in the very early days, um, mm -hmm. until way, way later, there are tons of books and published about it. And he spoke about it on a couple of podcasts, but I, I'm, I'm pretty sure they were not going on, you know, Monday, Monday morning radio shows back then and talking to the world about, Hey, we have a lot of, you know, a lot of shady crap happening on our system, but we took care of it. It's just, People don't focus on the "but we took care of it" quote soon after the the first bit. Um, right, that makes know. sense. I I think, but but one thing one thing I have to give um, this founder specifically um, kudos for is um, just the fact that he was extremely vocal when it came out. So what what most founders do, at least what I've seen um, since I started paying attention to the space, is basically. Um, they just go in damage control and they go internally and they on from the public's yeah. perspective they're silent but you know well, as controversial not that as, silent right now 
I mean, people are, yeah, are kind of yeah. talking about it like, yo, this was a bad move. It's a bad look. You shouldn't have done that. There are better ways to do it. Um, I mean, what, what are we right. expected to do? Like, you know, we, we're expected to let these kinds of mistakes just cause the death of a company in a free market and understand like this is, you know, just part of uh, laissez-faire capitalism or, um, you know, uh, yeah, do we I mean, accept that this means higher interest rates in order to keep things truly decentralized or just think, does this thing just quickly morph into a bank and we all become okay with bank-like behaviors and, you know, resorting to dubious legal means to pressure people into certain actions, whether or not that person was truly in the wrong. Um, it's weird because, you know, right. DeFi is all about, uh, you know, screw the banks and, 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 and everything's supposed to be open and decentralized and everyone's on equal footing. And, and uh, you know, some say that it, it kind of democratizes credit a little bit more because you don't have the middlemen uh, controlling mm -hmm. banking standards and, and, and ruling people out for whatever reason. Um, but at the same time, it makes it a bit of a wild west and you always have that that trade-off, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely think, you know, in, in the early days of any new technology, there should be some equivalent of a wild west where the, the barriers of entry of that industry, if, if you're trying to start something, is extremely low. Um, just because that's how you make the fact, in, in my opinion, that's how you progress the fastest. I mean, if immediately after the internet came out, people were like, here's all these regulatory flame frameworks and you basically can't do shit. Um, I don't think we would have moved as fast as we would have. Oh, no, definitely. But, you know, it's just uh, the stakes here are pretty high, right? Like, you know, $90 million is a relatively small blip. Uh, just think mm -hmm. of, you know, how, how much Ethereum, how much ETH is under uh, or is in custody of, uh, you know, the, the MakerDAO type infrastructure and what happens if that were to get compromised. Now, I'm not saying they are compromised, nor do I. Uh, nor do I hope that to be the case. Again, I'm very bullish crypto, and I would not be in favor of the negative headlines, but uh, mm -hmm. it, it puts things into perspective. Right. Yeah. And then you know, you, you're you're bullish on crypto, and I'm I'm semi bullish. Like I, I I still think you know that there's some mania, and after you know, I'm I'm post reset bullish. Uh, but I know that there's there's a lot of mania going on right now. Where I am bullish is the technology. So I, I mentioned this in the last episode, I think, but um blockchain and and just the whole web3 movement is such a nice from an engineering perspective it's it's a very interesting space and it does solve a lot of issues that web2 is currently experiencing um but by the way we should what i'm very disclosure here oh which disclosure uh yeah so most of the equipment we're using right now as well as the software is kind of paid for by doge <laughs> oh <laughs> that's right yeah to yeah. clarify we I'm, don't I'm, have sponsors we were just uh we just yoloed some money into it early into the early in the year um and yeah. it's been uh good <laughs> we're not gonna go I, into the numbers I, yeah i i, I want to say it's good i mean it's 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 a long-term investment for sure but look it's it's a very wall street bets type you know th throwing throwing all of our eggs in one basket but Hey, I mean, as long as we have fun on the way up or down, right? That's all that matters. Um, yeah. but, but what I was saying was like on, on regarding the technology of the Web three movement is, I I wonder what I wonder what a, a, an event like this would do to the developer community that's building the blockchains, that's building um, all these protocols. I mean, in in my opinion, it doesn't really do anything because it's just a lesson learned of like, okay, when you update this, don't fuck up on this level, um, right? But yeah, I'm just I'm just very curious about how how this is going to play out. Honestly, I think this will be very quickly forgotten. Me too. 
we're just going to yeah. move on real quick. The market cap is too big. There's too many players too, doing too many things. A lot of things fail. You know, a lot of things end up being costly busts, and, and nobody cares. You know, it's part of VC, and crypto is obviously an extension of that. And I don't know. We'll yeah. just move on. Listen, there are much worse scenarios for ninety million dollars to disappear than you know a bug. Yeah, and and a reversible bug. We, right. Yeah. Definitely. Exactly. A, a reversible bug that you know, as controversial as it was, founder took action and. You know that's kind of the beauty of the space. I mean, it's it's people can fail on the on like a massive level, and it's just forgotten the next day because something amazing popped up, and it it turns into it turns from gossip into just a lesson learned, and now that that just won't happen again. Yeah, I don't know. It, it may happen again, but still, I would not become any more bearish because of that. You know, by the way, not talking right. about crypto and tech in 2021 is a bit like a tech radio show in 1995, completely ignoring the internet. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we, we promise not to turn this into a crypto bro podcast. Uh, <laughs> right. But yeah, it, it's going to come up from time to time. I mean, yeah, 2021 is just honestly the year of crypto, and and you know, we our research in this stuff is always just looking up what's what's what happened in the past week and. Even if even if we boil things down to like the two main things, one of them has to be crypto. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, but so so moving on from crypto. So we talked about this a little bit last podcast, but uh, the whole crypto China relationship that has been very very rocky nowadays. Yeah. Um. So uh, to continue our, our our theme of basically bashing everything that's going on in China at the moment. Um, Someone the in the South is like, you know, I like these disease and mo people. They're good. They're China bashing. <laughs> and they're going to be fans until they realize Mo is short for Mohammed. Yeah. Um, no, it's <laughs> short for Mohammed and Abdelaziz. <laughs> and then we're just going to look scary. at our Captivate chart and see like two listens drop. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, and absolutely no sponsors. Or maybe from Kuwait. I don't know. But um, yeah. Looking, looking at the whole like China power outage situation, um, I, I've been trying to wrap my head around it. It's like very, very interesting, and I've only had the time to read it when I'm fully burnt out. So, what what I've been making sense of it is because of political tension between China and Australia, China stops buying coal from Australia, um, and at the same time, cold weather caused demand for coal to skyrocket. And as they tried to shift to renewable energy because of a lack of coal. Um, a bad drought basically hit the hydropower center of the Yunnan province. Um, wind power growth slowed. And even if they fully transition to renewable energy, much of China's power still relies on coal, like a good, uh, uh, more than 50% of it, which is basically leading multiple factories and local governments to start rationing out power. And what people are saying is, from China's perspective, the, the whole power issue is even a bigger crisis than the Evergrande one. Um, that recently started popping up. Um, so here's the interesting part. So when before China cracked down on crypt crypto, what I would say is um, in terms of what this means for the rest of the world, power outages means you know any mining rigs that have been built in China may not perform as, as, as efficiently, which means that crypto as a whole is not going to have the support that it's going to have. But now that it's cracked down, what does it mean for the rest of the world? I mean, is it just proof that you know God's on the weaker side, or like? But I, I have no idea what this means. I mean, 
Look, in terms of what it means for crypto, nothing. There's more than enough people bringing more mining power online. Uh, the fact that you still can't find a graphics card means that the demand is healthy and there's more than enough incentive uh, uh, to mine, right? I mean, El Salvador is starting mining activities for Bitcoin with... Um, um, oh, what do you call volcanic? It? Yeah, right. Uh, uh, geothermal, volcanic energy, that kind of thing. But you know, right. again, that's yeah. that's Bitcoin. They're their new uh, semi-national currency or whatever. But uh, mm -hmm. proof of stake systems require a ton less energy, and it's not like we need Chinese coal to do this. Um, look, I, I think the reason this is making the news more than anything is uh, uh, you kind of saber rattling between superpowers. And the main reason we mm -hmm. talk about power grids, and by we, I mean people in the tech space, um, it, it's not so much about national politics, but rather about the climate change and technological change implications of it. Um, I, right. I personally cannot take people seriously if they foresee a green future with zero nuclear. Um, nothing generates near as much power as, as nuclear uh, per dollar spent. Um, I'm, I'm not anti-solar and anti-wind. I think they're both extremely, uh, useful technologies and, 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 you know, they're, they're, they're coming up and they're becoming more and more efficient. Uh, solar in some places is actually becoming more efficient than, uh, natural gas power. That's true, at least in the UAE, believe it or not, where natural gas itself is pretty cheap. Um, but the, the future is nuclear. And, um, there's a lot of people who are kind of resistant to that idea because when you say nuclear, they think Chernobyl. They think Three Mile Island. They think they think um, uh, Fukushima. And honestly, if that's your main takeaway from that technology, then I think you've uh, have, you, you you really have not been reading the news, or at least the right mm -hmm. news. Um, I, I want to read a small excerpt from from uh, MIT News. Um, this is actually a fairly recent article. It's about a month old. Um, so nuclear, in a nutshell, is moving from fission to fusion. Uh, fusion. I'm not going to go into nuclear physics, but fusion A does not create nuclear waste, and um, B has not been really a suitable form of nuclear power for a long time now because it would take. It, it, I mean, it would expend more energy than it would create, uh, which obviously is of no use if you're if you're trying to generate power. But um, the, the reason for that is it was kind of difficult to contain the reaction until uh, electromagnets actually became strong enough um, a, a, as a containment measure to have more energy being produced rather than spent on you know stimulating the reaction. Uh, if, if there's any physics nerds out there who, who are about to say, or DM me and say, like, you boiled it down to nothing, I know, but this is not a nuclear tech podcast. So I, I just want to read this one right. small excerpt. Um, it was a moment three years in the making based on intensive research and design work. On September 5th, for the first time, a, a large high-temperature superconducting electro electromagnet was ramped up to a field strength of 20 Tesla, the most powerful magnetic field of its kind ever created on Earth. That successful demonstration helps resolve the greatest uncertainty in the quest to build the world's f first fusion power plant um, that can produce more power than it consumes. Uh, according to the project's leaders at MIT and startup company Commonwealth Fusion Systems, or CFS, uh, end quote. So, look, um, el electrical power generation and you know hardware startups in general, um, mm -hmm. th there are folks in this industry whose eyes roll back in their head uh, when you start talking about it. Uh, in GovTech, I mean, it definitely comes up quite a bit because you know energy uh, energy legislation is is pretty much always on the floor of the Senate or House. Right, yeah. 
I mean, almost always. Um, it's definitely coming back uh, with, uh, you know, Biden's discussion uh, about the infrastructure bill and ongoing power, uh, you know, power generation and how uh, 80% of the U.S. Uh, power grid is going to be carbon free by 2030. Um, these are all lofty goals, and I, I think they're good goals. Um, so, but for people like us, you know, in the tech space, it's it's really just an arms race of technology. So mm -hmm. it, it's going to come down to who has the best carbon-free power generation mechanisms. Um, I really like the fusion space because I think it's maybe five to ten years away from becoming commercially viable and able to deploy in a short period of time with not much, you know, not not much of a capital expenditure. Um, a lot of money right now is going into space tech, which is something people did not foresee just five, 10 years ago. It was seen as, um, you know, SpaceX was the big player. There's a couple more kind of financed by billionaires. We're not getting into that. Um, but it was not a generally acceptable space. And now I get invited to, uh, you know, aerospace and, and, and space uh, uh, incubators uh, in LA, despite knowing nothing about the space myself and not investing in it. Um, mm -hmm. carbon free, carbon free tech is attracting much more capital. Um, it's happening already with the Gates foundation. Now their entire funds being, uh, raised for it. Like Chris Saka's lower carbon capital and companies like Commonwealth fusion systems in Boston are actually viable targets for VC money. Um, I guess, uh, you know, if you're used to the, the kind of cash flows that you expect from biotech investing, where it's just CapEx, 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 and then something works and then there's a large payout, um, I think it's kind of generally similar in terms of the, in terms of the return profiles, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm of the opinion that neither China nor the U.S. is going to fix uh, carbon emissions until we perfect and grow the footprint of nuclear technology. And on the other side, I think you know Elon Musk's uh, X Prize, the hundred million dollars for the best technology to suck carbon out of the air. Uh, the combination of those two is going to drive energy policy and energy tech and energy investment, um, and also going to ultimately fix, um, you know, the climate issue. Um, it, it's switching away from carbon at the same time. We need to decarbonize by actually sucking it out of the air. Uh, we have the tech to do that now. We just need to learn to do it for pennies. Yeah. I, th I think the, the, the interesting part about this is, is, um, in most industries, and th this is speaking like in modern times and historically, and this relates to a lot of things that we're going to be talking about, um, creative destruction is always the theme of a new industry. You, you want to just build fast, fail magnificently, people learn their lessons, maybe that thing happens again, and that's that's no problem. But eventually, generally, through through things crashing and burning, you, you make progress. Um, with something like nuclear tech, which has had such a bad history, um, in the public side, at least, uh, do you think that that industry as a whole is going to be able to afford creative destruction and moving fast? Or do you think the reason it's taking so long to eventually get to it is a mix of research and just tons and tons of caution? Um, I think it's a bit of both. And I think a more pressing issue in the short term is the fact that there has been so much capital expended building up oil and gas infrastructure that it's difficult for states, especially states that have backed this sort of building, um, to just walk away from it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think that's, you know, historically speaking, there's there's a lot of instances of that where half of the country moves on to a new type of revolution or a new type of energy or, or industry. And that basically causes a ton of division, which I think is, is, is definitely going to make um, the next couple of years very interesting to live through. And from a GovTech pers gov perspective, it's just going to make you know, a lot of the legislation that we process that comes out of there very, um, 
interesting and 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 potentially opinionated. You know, switching from coal to oil was really accelerated after World War II. After oil proved to be, uh, you know, just a far better resource for like naval propulsion reasons. Um, you know, coal ships were retired from the U.S. and British navies, and everyone moved moved to to, to gasoline and gas powered ships. Um, you know, at, at wartime, when you're talking about you know technological change in wartime, then legislation doesn't really factor into it because it's sort of a the DOD, the DOD said B and it shall be, but I mean, mm -hmm. from from your angle, from the GovTech angle, what what do you think starts to happen that accelerates this kind of uh, this shift from the oil and gas to the nuclear and renewable focus? I mean, from from our end, it's basically more legislation that allows for not less regulation, but just more uh, a clearly defined regulatory framework, which I think for for most new industries. Um, is what a lot of massive potential adopters are waiting for. Um, they, they basically just want to see, okay, what are the rules so that when we throw billions of dollars into this, how, like, how can we not shell out billions more in fines and fees and whatever? Um, but yeah, for, from from the I, I, you know looking through a lot of at least this legislative session's bills and. Um, keep in mind, like most of the the jurisdictions that we're looking at are all, are all in California. Um, it seems to be that energy is just a drop in the ocean of political issues in terms of legislation that's being passed. I mean, um, what's very interesting, as as weird as it sounds, I like to describe the the legislature as kind of like a Reddit of you have these very tiny sub communities inside the legislature that religiously care about one single topic. And every now and then, you have a single piece of legislation or, or, or a post or something that make it make, makes it to like the r slash all page of one single issue that matters so much to where all of a sudden everyone wants to have an opinion on it. And we haven't necessarily seen that from an energy perspective. So um, at the federal level, a lot of it has been with, um, well, spending and just... Um, anything about finance in general because of the situation that we're in and the whole October 18th debt ceiling thing that's coming up. Um, from the California perspective, I mean, we just got out of a very um, interesting recall um, for which I will save my opinion on. Um, but um, a lot of the a lot of the topics that came out of there were about um, housing, um, about basically um, fixing very interesting problems that I'm surprised we still deal with. So like droughts, wildfires, power outages. Um, but I know that my, my understanding at least is that once all of those are fixed, um, people will start to find new opportunities to create industries. And I think that's when, that's when creative destruction is basically going to be embraced um, in, in um, that, in, in like the nuclear industry when, the legislature finally gives a crap about it. You know when they'll give a crap about it? Mm -hmm. When 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 they get rich off it. So right, uh, until right. until the nuclear tech, the nuclear uh, fusion tech is absolutely proven, and then all of a sudden you have you know massive lobbying muscle on their side, then they'll start listening. When it comes down right. to uh, like you know carbon scrubbing and sucking it out of the air. Uh, oh, by the way, fun fact. The uh, carbon that gets sucked out of the air undergoes this uh, uh, chemical process that creates calcium carbonate. Um, calcium carbonate is uh, 
It's exactly what seashells are made of. So the the end product of that carbon scrubbing process actually creates like micro pellets that look like crushed seashells, um, which looks completely oh, useless until you realize that that is the uh, uh, raw material for the production of graphene, which is kind of where battery tech is going in the future. So uh, right, and yeah, what's actually very nice is that. Um, this was even, I think, before we even incorporated, we were in this one startup competition, and uh, there was a company that I think wasn't going the graphene route with crushed seashells, but was basically trying to use it as a as a low cost replacement for um, seashells. Well, yeah, <laughs> seashells, but yeah, but but they were using it as like a low cost re- replacement to make what was it like uh, to build actual houses with? So. Um, any like countertops, tables, chairs, just using that material is actually very, very interesting. Um, but, and this is a segue that I've been very, very, uh, I've, I've been urged, like very interested in using, or, or I can't wait to use, but speaking about toxicity. <laughs> wait, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Do you want to touch on the next one? I, I, I will let you, I will let you circle back, but I just thought of like the dumbest dad joke in my head. Uh, what? You know what would be like the best New York Post uh, headline for if a uh, a notable female founder sets up a carbon scrubbing um, uh, startup, uh, say in the LA or San Diego area, uh, right. and that ends up becoming like a massive exporter of calcium carbonate to battery producers. Can you imagine the headline? Seashells. I'm trying to think of one. She sells seashells by the seashore. <laughs> That okay. would be yeah. The, the the journalist that comes up with that should just like take the rest of the week off. Yeah, which means me. Okay. Speaking of yeah, toxicity, yeah. right? Go on. Oh, I thought this was your topic. Um. Anyways, oh, so yeah. Speaking of toxicity. Oh, alrighty. Uh, so speaking of toxicity, basically, um, for the unfamiliar, um, getting into the whole Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos trial, so. Theranos is a now defunct health tech startup that was once worth around what nine billion dollars, based on the claims of the founders having created a blood testing technology that only works with a single um, drop of blood, as opposed to the different vials that you need to take in a normal venous draw nowadays. Um, so the company was reg- running regular tests on existing machines in the background by basically diluting that single drop of blood into multiple different vials and containers and what that resulted in is they were giving patients extremely inaccurate results um so what made that very concerning was one of the first groups of patients that they tested the, these machines are on um were terminal cancer patients so for someone who's in that of a vulnerable state um using them as sort of a marketing ploy uh very very toxic really messed up um but there was also concerns brought up from the chemistry side, which was, you know, if you do take uh, blood from a fingertip, which is what w- was Theranos' whole thing, um, you're taking blood from the capillaries, and the capillary blood is polluted. And even if you, if even if you plan to use that blood, polluted with um, what? Um, I'm not sure what it was, but I I read bad blood many like almost a year ago at this point, and like, did you they pick were your nose saying, prior to the blood draw? <laughs> actually maybe no but it was, you put it in uh, your belly button <laughs> like the, the lab tech is like man it smells off 
<laughs> it's like, why does your blood have lint in it? Um, but, but, um, but basically what it was is like, it was polluted with some sort of, you know, thing that the capillary eventually f- uh, filters out. Chipotle and- cheese sauce. Oh man, I can, that's I can your really finger. Go for that's your blood. That's, that is my blood. Yeah. Chipotle and like maybe some marinara or some shit. Um, but uh, yeah, so, so drawing the blood from there is very polluted. Um, and then at the same time, if you plan to run as many immunoassays as Theranos claimed to be able to run, uh, you need a different settings, different temperatures, different pressures, and doing all of that in a single machine uh, from the technical community, like the biotech community at least, was was just insane. So, I mean, I think you you might know more about Elizabeth's like history because I, I I was just very captivated by what happened with Theranos. But do you, you know, know just I, a little bit about? I, I didn't tell you I didn't tell you about this beforehand, but we have a, a very special guest today. Oh. So Elizabeth is, is actually um, joining us uh, via phone call from the Caribbean island she's currently hiding in. <laughs> hey everyone, right, so, uh, okay, I can't do her voice, but <laughs> have you have you listened to her voice, her fake voice? I I have. It's it's deeper than mine. It's it's very bass boosted. <laughs> it's 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 this deep baritone little girl trying to pretend her dad to pretend to be her dad voice. Yeah, you know. Yeah. It's like I'm Elizabeth, I, but it's uh, her. She, by the way, she forgot to put on the voice once during a podcast. I don't know which one, a radio show or something. And then she immediately remember like that. remembered, and her voice they just went from. And then it's <laughs> it, 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 it was scary. It reminds me of puberty. It was bad. It was like a break. Um, <laughs> it's she's easy to make fun of, by the way. But uh, so you know, oh, Elizabeth, by the way, was not you know. At first, at least, an idiot like Elizabeth was a, was a Stanford dropout, like very kind of learned, educated people called her the next Steve Jobs. And despite dressing her voice and dress, I mean, changing her voice and dressing like him, she was uh, for a while the world's youngest self-made billionaire. I think she lost that title to to Kylie Jenner, but anyways. Uh, so, oh, man. there are a lot of misconceptions about what went down at Theranos and how this was not exactly the world's biggest failure in due diligence, right? So first of all, mm-hmm. n- none of the sand, none of the the Sand Hill Road uh, big boys, you know, backed them. Um, this was not a Sequoia, A16Z, blah blah company. You know, um, mm-hmm. they had uh, a lot of non VCs backing them, and uh, you know, from the outside to a lot of people, myself included, when it was still you know kind of up and coming, this company looked like a legitimate startup just trying to prove a product. Like you know, the fact that. Uh, in the early days that they wanted money to experiment with new technology. Uh, that's not misrepresentation. That's a startup. Um, but uh, around 2009, when they started having trouble raising additional capital, that's when the misrepresentation, when when the fraud allegedly began. Uh, I have to say allegedly because this is currently in the courts and obviously I'm not in the courts to opine. But, um, you know, so it, it turns out now, at least we found out a couple of days ago, that one of the biggest whistleblowers uh, for all this was actually the head of the lab. Um, who was growing kind of increasingly frustrated of being left out of kind of key processes within the lab. Like, you know, you would imagine that the head of the lab would know whether or not a product at least looked like it worked at first. And he was being shielded from that information. Um, you know, it's, and, and the company, again, like, you know, the outward appearance, the way they were able to attract all of this like legitimate talent, biotech talent from San Francisco and beyond was they have the patina of a good company. 
the board included a lot of like government heavyweights, like Jim Mattis, um, who was the former uh, uh, Secretary of, of Defense. You had George Shultz and Henry Kissinger, like the former um, Secretaries of State. And there were a lot of other, like, you know, kind of DC heavyweights. Uh, Betsy DeVos's family uh, had, uh, had invested. Uh, Rupert Murdoch's family had invested. Um, and it, all of them seem to be completely duped. And this is a company that raised up to like, I think it was $700 million. Um, so this is really a story of how non-technical people, even though, you know, in their own right, sophisticated investors and people with notable business and government experience, um, <clears throat> these people can be duped into, into, you know, just buying the fluff of a founder pitch, um, and writing a, a giant check with doing zero due diligence. So, you know, this being kind of touted as a story of a failure of Silicon Valley DD, it just, it, it doesn't stack up to me. I mean, had they duped everyone on, on Sand Hill Road, then yes, but no, that did not happen. Um, but, you know, this uh, failure of DD, it, it's, it's, it's those conversations I have with people nowadays, um, including people who are in tech and actively writing checks, like failure of due diligence and price discipline and that sort of a thing. It's... Um, you know, it, it gives people anxiety and it kind of draws parallels between, oh, the mania of the investors in that one isolated incident and uh, what everyone is kind of feeling between seed and series A now. Um, mm -hmm. So will, you know, will episode uh, 4,356 of, of this podcast be talking about the massive bust of 2022 and how it was a failure of DD and uh, the result of tulip mania? Or... Um, or uh, can we chalk Theranos up to being just pure fraud and something we can forget and not anything indicative of kind of from that perspective, future investment investor behavior? Yeah, I, I think what's what what I noticed when when this first started popping up, or at least when I read uh, John Kerry's Bad Blood was um, it this is an exception. It's not a standard that you see across even even if it's like rare occurrences, you still don't see that in um in in silicon valley in general i think the the biggest thing that you mentioned was sure they raised 700 million dollars but it was all by people who had no experience in um in biotech and and what i'm seeing here is there is a threshold to where early stage founders stick to the so storytelling side and sell the fomo and the hype um of the product that's still in its early stages but she just seemed to have taken it way too far and she was able to leverage a lot of things like um, being a Stanford dropout, uh, knowing that, you know, understanding Apple's approach of like leaning heavily into the marketing. But what it seemed to happen is what, what, what seems to have, ha have happened is when she noticed that she, when she was running into obstacles with the tech, um, you know, any, anyone would have said, all right, we're going to need some help here. Um, but, but the exception occurs in her case where she tries to hide it and that basically leads to all the, the 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 alleged you know information of the toxic workplace and um how her her co like co-founders or co-executives um yeah. treated that internally and how they hid a lot of the stuff about the devices um it, it's so my my part of it is basically that the the founder's perspective of it is something that i read and it was by um, it was a tweet by Madison Campbell, I think it was CEO of uh, Lita Health, and what she said was like her her understanding of the whole Theranos situation was um, 
every time she talks to investors, they never want it. They, they care about the product metrics and customer interviews, but they themselves never take a look at the product itself. Um, and that kind of makes sense because, you know, if, if I went over to an investor if, or if I gave you, for example, um, access to our code base, like it wouldn't make sense to you and you wouldn't be able to tell if it's BS or, or a reasonable product. Um, I'm telling you, I mean, me that's, <laughs> I have, I have receipts of you calling me stupid. Don't, don't, don't worry. Um, no, but, and I have read um, your code base. <laughs> oh yeah. I think, I think you have, um, nice. it's clean. It's fixed refactor now. Um, but, but, um, yeah, so, so back to the point, point I was saying it's, um, yeah, when, when you raise, um, from investors who have not been a part or who have not been exposed to your industry, um, even if they take a look at the product or if they don't take a look at the product, it, it just, you know, doing that, raising from investors who don't know about your market, as well as leaning heavily into marketing would create a Theranos situation. So it kind of makes sense, but I, I, I'm kind of on the same page as you of like people using that as an excuse to shit on Silicon Valley. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not on the same page as that. I, I think Silicon you know Valley does You know who you can rightfully continue. shit on though? For, for yeah. failing in due diligence? Mm-hmm. Walgreens. Oh yeah, yeah. They, they are Walgreens. not new to healthcare, nor are they new to to you know the blood testing and clinical stuff. Um, it blows my mind how they totally okayed that. Uh, um, how, how they okayed that machine to run um, blood tests without ever once like maybe you know checking it against a control sample or something like. Even if they did not care for human life in the slightest, which I'm not saying was the case, but hypothetically. Don't you think they would, at the very least, want to reduce their uh, liability associated with testing out new, you know, blood testing machinery? I mean, yeah, my, the cost of screwing this up is immense. I mean, there were people who were healthy who were told they have cancer. Yeah, yeah. You no, know? The, I, I think, yeah, the, 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 the interesting part of it was Walgreens, if I remember correctly, was also in a place of desperation where um, competing against like the Safeways and the CVSs, it was trying to find something to give itself an edge. And that's when they came across. Um, the, I think that's either when Theranos reached out or that's when they came across Theranos. But on, on both parties in that failure of due diligence, it was just an act of desperation. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think that's, that's what caused it to happen. More, more so on Theranos' part than, than Walgreens. Like, you know, because if, if Theranos had that offer on the table and walked away from it, then I can imagine the signaling is very negative. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I think internally, the, the, I mean, like, you know, internally, if there's, if there's no other revenue and you're being given this massive revenue opportunity and you walk away from it, clearly something is very wrong. Um, but how this passed and how this was kind of allowed, um, into it's, uh, you know, it's suite of offerings to clients, Walgreens suite of offerings is it's just beyond me. I cannot wrap my head around it. It's sort of like, uh, you know, general motors and, uh, Nikola, you know, like, Nikola had a oh, ten right. bazillion dollar valuation because basically they made a fancy wagon that rolls down a hill, and GM was like, "Yep, this is a car." Yeah, yeah. It 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 makes you it makes it's very interesting because from the from it it yeah I I definitely agree with you that it's very hard to wrap your head around because Walgreens is like a pillar of of just pharmaceuticals and healthcare basically in the U.S. and American healthcare. Yes, they failed. Yeah, and 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 they basically simply were able to welcome in a a marketing lie 
Um, and, and, you know, same thing that happened with, with GM and Nicola, as you've mentioned, but does that like, from, from, from my opinion, or like from what my perspective, what I see is that whether you're GM, whether you're Walgreens, it always happens as an act of desperate desperation. So could there be a vulnerability in corporations right now where if they feel like they're teetering or they're sinking, they're just willing to lean heavy into the marketing and the partnerships and all that different type of stuff, even if it's like complete vaporware BS? Well, I mean, I don't know, but if you could generate like an actionable list of companies that were likely to buy into bullshit out of desperation, you can you can turn around and sell that to a lot of startups. <laughs> that's that's very true. Yeah. <laughs> right? But yeah. Well, I mean, look, yeah. These startups, things like Theranos and even the non non-health tech startups, I mean, you know, the, the reasoning that founders have for putting a lot of them together, um, you know, they, they do it because they want to make a kind of quantifiable difference in the everyday person's life, right? Um, mm -hmm. I like founders with that mission. Uh, I think founders like Elizabeth Holmes, who uh, veer into, you know, who join the dark side and do the things that they allegedly did are disgusting. But that uh, that should not mean that we should be naturally skeptical of anyone who has a lofty goal, right? Um, mm -hmm. Startup, I actually like um, quite a bit when I really wish I invested in, but did not, not that I had the opportunity, is uh, uh, Misho. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of interested in what's happening in emerging markets, especially over the last of 18 months. Uh, you know, the last 18 months have been really interesting for places like India and Latin America, uh, Southeast Asia. There's just, there's, there's just so much good stuff happening. Europe too, if you want to consider that a tech emerging market, even though I'm going to get a lot of hate mail for saying that. Um, <laughs> by a lot, I mean two DMs from an Italian guy. Um, <laughs> so, you know, Misho is, it's an Indian startup backed by Sequoia India and YC, and they raised $570 million uh, for, for their Series F, um, bringing their valuation to around $4.9 and that's up from $2.1 that it was valued at just during Series E in April. Um, so, you know, Misho for the uninformed is basically, it, it's a three-sided marketplace that connects suppliers with resellers and customers. And, uh, you know, they're all on the same platform. And, uh, you know, this kind of maximizes the prospect of, of reaching customers uh, via social selling uh, by building tools specifically for that. Um, and, you know, for an individual reseller or a retailer who's on that platform, um, you know, individually, your, your, your acquisition cost kind of comes way down just because of the dearth of potential demand on those platforms and, you know, having the tools to, to go after them. It's made a significant impact in people's lives. Now, I did not know this till very recently. It was a TechCrunch article. 80% of the resellers on the platform are Indian women. Um, and these women now have economic prospects thanks to having basically a personalizable software stack built by people like Misho. And that's everything from inventory management to the payment, um, to, to the payment options being covered by Misho and various plugins. Um, you remember last time we talked about the cost of experimenting with new business models um, becoming extremely low and therefore more welcoming and uh, less of a risk in people's eyes. Now we said that right. you know from the startup perspective, like you know the the, the risk of uh, uh, you know launching some new feature or new side project from within a startup and it not working out. I mean, it's not the financial catastrophe that it used to be twenty years ago because you didn't pay for all the infrastructure to be built under it. Um, right. Yeah. Everything's an API now, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, from the individual perspective, that also makes sense because if I want to set up a shop and see how I do, and you know, I can kill it if it doesn't work out, uh, the cost of starting a, bi a business that fails um, is no longer as high as having to do it with a full retail footprint. 
uh, and amassing massive inventory of your own and setting up like you know credit facilities and and uh, you know paid up capital uh, requirements for incorporation in some parts of the world, which actually can be quite high for most entrepreneurs. Um, nor do you have to uh, set up, uh, like I said, a retail spot. But um, see, these marketplaces, um, it's no longer simply a nexus point for buyers and sellers. Like, you know, a Craigslist type business would never catch on if it launched today. But, you know, right now, if you want a marketplace, your marketplace, you know, should be uh, two or three sided. Um, there should be a full suite of software services to A, maximize the retention of the users and um, mm -hmm. also maximize, you know, your, your margins. Um, and that's, that's by you know injecting a SaaS angle and a fintech angle um, into the you know the e-commerce infrastructure in this case in an emerging market. Now, I mean, India right. is huge. The promise is huge. The opportunities are huge. So I'm I'm super bullish on India. Um, but you know, you start asking the question: Will unlocking value by providing equality as a service basically will that become a major major selling point of emerging market startups? Um, because you know the, the story here, yeah, it's 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 a great business and it's doing great. But the fact that um, Indian women who you know possibly otherwise did not have the option of building their own retail footprint can now do this, um, you know, to me that's a good thing. It's win win, right? Yeah, I I, I kind of like that a lot because the, this is a, a lot of the more recent massive now public startups um, have all started with this kind of thesis. Um, you know, whether it's a Shopify or a Stripe or a Coinbase or a Robinhood, it's always about leveling the playing field for people or just lowering the barriers of entry for something that was once just impossible to get into. And the the, the effect of that is basically amplified in, in an emerging market because when you have the hype of an emerging market behind you uh, and you lower the barriers of entry, that not only makes for a very good business, if managed well, of course, but it, it sets the foundation for so many businesses to be built on top of it. So the biggest example of this is basically looking at e-commerce. Uh, for example, um, I think in the past, in, in 2021 or 2020, uh, two companies have gone public whose entire shops or entire point of, uh, point of sales is basically Shopify. So the, the ability, the, the fact that they were able to amass such a fortune as to go public because of something that came up so many years ago that leveled the playing field um, in an industry that at one point a really, really long time ago was was, was stagnant, but is now really active like e-commerce um, is just, it just goes to show that for so many other industries that are coming up right now and, and countries too, um, like India or, or Latin America or the, the Latin America region. Um, it's, I'm just very bullish on emerging markets in general. Uh, and 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 how people how how new players in those industries um, level the playing field, basically, if that makes any sense. You know what's one region where I think it's it's super ripe for these uh, multi-sided platforms to come and disrupt a lot of old business plans or a lot of uh, old mm -hmm. business paradigms. Um, it's actually the Middle East, North Africa. Um, however, what saddens me greatly is the fact that a lot of people are shut off from that opportunity because of a a lack of certain infrastructure and be a regulatory disincentive from, you know, kind of, it, it stops people from stepping in and fixing that lack of infrastructure. Um, you know, so for example, you know, the marketplace is the future. Like we said, that's, that's, it's SaaS and FinTech. You need SaaS and FinTech to be a viable component there in order to drive margins and to retain users, right? 
Right. Yeah. And and so in in Kuwait, for example, like you know, fintech options are limited because you have a lot of central bank regulations that prevent you from offering a lot of them. Um, you know, just becoming. Uh, if, even if you're working with a sponsor bank, by the way, just like building on top of what they have in order to, um, in order to offer credit to people in a marketplace, uh, you know, I, I can't be specific, but I've seen a lot of startups hit major hiccups just get, trying to get banks to play along. Um, some, and this is not just Kuwait, by the way, it's a lot of countries, the Middle East and North Africa. Um, this is, I mean, I'm talking all the way from Morocco to Kuwait on the map, and a lot of all the, all the countries in between. Um, so because of the patchwork of laws, you have people who are very open to uh, financial integration and you have people who are not open at all. Um, on the fintech side, that means payments becoming more difficult. That means extending credit becoming more difficult. Um, that means working with uh, non-bank entities in order to extend credit becoming more difficult. Um, banks internally may have rules against like, you know, kind of liberating their or, or liberalizing their API uh, policies um, that may make it difficult just to even just process transactions for God's sake, or, or, or even you know do basic record keeping. On the SaaS so, side, yeah. one of the issues is it's illegal in some jurisdictions um, to provide a credit or debit card and keep it on file so that you can automatically charge month on month. What that means is recurring revenue is not truly recurring revenue. So you end up in a position where you either need to get the consumer to pay up. A significant amount upfront to cover continuous months, um, or you have to mm -hmm. remind them month on month on month to pay again, which you know a makes upselling difficult because you have more contact with uh, with uh, whoever you're selling to, and uh, b does not provide you with the uh, comfort that comes with recurring revenue. And going back to the fintech side, you know it becomes makes it more difficult to sell your revenue through pipe and competitors of pipe and and that sort of a thing to help finance your operations. And at the same time, uh, because it's now a higher risk revenue stream, you start to, you have to charge more just to compensate for the risk because the probability of you churning comes becomes much higher if payment options are more right. difficult. And and so so correct me if I'm wrong when I say this, but also on top of the the very difficult regulatory framework or like environment it is in all the media countries to navigate. Um, I feel like another thing that introduces such a massive obstacle to anyone trying to build something like this is just simply a a market that's willing to adapt something as new as as, as a SaaS platform. Because even like for the little research that I did about um SaaS, the, the, the SaaS industry in Kuwait, it's you know, any 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 sort of software company in Kuwait can fall into two different buckets. You either have the um purely consumer um where it's basically a you pay us and we send you a service or something like that, like most of the delivery startups and the home maintenance startups. Um, or looking at it generally from the media perspective, it's companies that sell directly to either governments or or very, very massive corporations. Um, but SaaS companies that are traditionally defined as B2B in the US, I I haven't seen a lot of. And and I think if if someone comes in with something with, with an idea as ambitious as you want to create this marketplace and disrupt the 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 current ecosystem in in the MENA region. Um, the first major hurdle you have to get over is, you know, you you have countries of people who are using WhatsApp as Slack. How do you introduce the idea of a SaaS to them? Right. Well, I mean, 
here's the thing. So the SaaS component of, of things like Misho and their competitors, um, what they're capitalizing on is something that you see here as well, which is the fact that everyone basically lives off of, off of WhatsApp and other texting apps. Um, so, I mean, Misho would not be Misho if it were not possible, if, sorry, if, if it didn't have the opportunity to convince individual resellers to sell or open sales channels via WhatsApp, via Facebook chat, via Instagram chat, and so on and so forth. Now we have that same trend as India as uh, you know, here, we, we see it in the Middle East, North Africa, we see it in the GCC. I think all that needs to happen is you need a shift to, to, um, you know, kind of B2B API services, um, again, allowing someone to build their stack to really launch a business. Um, and for the, uh, for the B2B space, um, look, wh when I was deploying capital here, uh, a lot of the uh, B2B SaaS opportunities I saw were mainly in the marketing tech sector and specifically when it revolves around influencers, uh, like influencer mm -hmm. service marketplaces or, um, uh, you know, like social media, uh, listening, that, that sort of a thing that was, that was semi-active. It wasn't dead. It wasn't getting a ton of money, but it, it wasn't dead. I mean, it would, you, you would see a couple deals here and there. Um, in, you know, so, so far as B2B is concerned, I think people have to realize that the, the quote unquote beachhead market here, um, it, it's, it is going to be, and it is currently, uh, the F and B space. And by the way, that's kind of lagging the consumer behavior because not too long ago, the only kind of consumer ventures that would be able to raise significant amounts of money or, or get significant growth and valuation in the region were in the F and B space. Also, it was delivery marketplaces. Mm -hmm. Remember that the, the, right. the, you know, the real, uh, the real exits in this region, uh, happened with, uh, you know, F and B delivery marketplaces. Um, so, and that's true of Kuwait, of, uh, you know, Saudi, of uh, the Emirates, of uh, a lot of places. And a lot of the players there were actually able to grow into uh, neighboring regions. And, uh, you know, the right. growth trajectory now for people in the consumer space kind of goes beyond the GCC and they start looking at Egypt and they start looking at Turkey and they start looking, you know. So all of that began with uh, F&B consumer. And uh, mm -hmm. F&B enterprise... I mean, you have you have uh, people who are trying to build the same as uh, what Toast did out in Boston for the U.S. Uh, for the U.S. F and B market, um, and you can see the uptake in enterprise software use. Um, you know, higher billings, higher margins on users. That's that's already transpiring, and it has been transpiring for a couple of years. And uh, just like the consumer, the, the consumer business kind of spread beyond F and B uh, to other sectors as consumers had now learned that you know commerce can begin on your phone or on your desktop um i, I think we're definitely going to start seeing that behavior more so in other sectors um but you know the the, the beachhead markets again are, are f and b and uh the, the the only other thing that comes close i would say would be transport because things like you know kareem and swivel um have done mm -hmm. well in the consumer space and uh, uh i'm sure the transport enterprise space is actually going to start seeing much more investment as a result of this and by the way, something I learned when I was in investment banking, rule of thumb is 10% uh, of the GDP of any given economy is uh, transportation. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. So, you know, food yeah. and transport are definitely huge and definitely receptive to anything that can help them expand their margin. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, as, as, as saturated as that market is right now, it, it is a lot of the players in those industries, especially in the MENA region, are. A, a copy and they're, they're just duplicates of each other in my opinion uh, i mean 
it's it's sort of like what I'm seeing in like B2B fintech payments nowadays where in the US because the well crypto aside and I think I mentioned this in the last episode but everything um, is a fast clone. Yeah, everything is a fast clone but the the moats nowadays are not being built with the tech and the data but it's being built with the type of deals that you offer. So or worse, um, money. Going or money, exactly. The non like if, if, if you get yeah, <laughs> pretty much. The the uh, it's it's sort of the easiest moat you can build. But um, what's what, what's very interesting about that is, um, you know, take take a lot of the food delivery businesses that we see in Kuwait. So you have the the Talabat, you have carriage, you have um, well, deliveries. No player in there. You haven't been yeah, here in a while, so I'm not sure what you remember. But it's yeah, I've I've. Uh, we have owls been, and I've pigeons a... that deliver food. We have that thing from <laughs> Harry Potter. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the 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 what I was saying is like there, there's no difference between them. So I think that that industry to an outsider does seem very saturated because there's just a lot of in, there's a lot of players that are massive at this point. But at the same time, um, it's it's a very nice market that's fresh for innovation. So if someone comes in and goes, okay, we have all these restaurants, but they add a very specific twist. Can't think of it from the top of my head, but um, if they add a twist that either gives them a technical advantage or some sort of favorable deals, uh, if that makes any sense, that's going to allow them to, you know, revive a lot of the industries right now that are taken by multiple players, but it's going to make a lot of players um, aware of the beachhead market in yeah. the main region, because by the way, if I see that's oh yeah, no, I mean I'm gonna say, do you know what? You know, now that the the basic uh, F and B delivery platform wars are are pretty much over and the victors are settled um, in in the GCC, you know what the next frontier is? Um, mm -hmm. So again, we're we're seeing this in F and B, and I'm sure this kind of progression was going to start coming to uh, different sectors later. But in F and B, um, first you had sort of the enterprise services type startups. Um, a good one that I actually um, invested in on behalf of my former employer was one called Foodix uh, in Saudi Arabia. Mm. So they're basically toast. You know, the same as toast is in the States. They recently went public. They're, they're kind of doing the same for the region. And um, okay. um, the other direction that I'm seeing is um, uh, sort of the unbundling versus bundling type of, uh, type of thing going on. So uh, right. you know, the, the marketplaces were all about bundling. It's all your options on one app, right? Um, and, uh, now there are, there are startups, uh, like, uh, Zida, for example, um, that's actually also Kuwaiti. Um, they're offering the unbundling option. So, um, individual restaurants are kind of sick and tired of, uh, of, uh, paying marketplace fees here because they keep on expanding. And obviously they have a lot more leverage as a result of the pandemic when that was the only way to sell. Um, right. and by the way, this is, this has played out in every economy in the world. Um, unbundling versus bundling keeps on happening everywhere. Um, so right now, people like Zeta are, are allowing uh, customers to kind of go directly to their consumers. Um, I don't have any insight onto their financials, but what I understand is they're, they're doing quite well and they are growing. Um, and uh, the unbundling approach is actually proving to be quite popular in the region. Um, people do not mind getting through to their favorite uh, F&B providers without... Uh, a marketplace as a middleman. So it, it's interesting to see those competitive dynamics play out. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm bullish for the sector. I think there's a lot of people working on some really cool stuff. 
Um, and again, we keep saying it like, you know, F and B is the beachhead and sooner or later, this activity is going to become evident in a lot more sectors in this region. Um, you know, for yeah. example, when, think- when we talk about unbundling, it's, um, um, you know, look at any bank's, uh, webpage, like, you know, just their homepage mm-hmm. online or, uh, look at, um, Craigslist, um, almost every link that you see on that page to some service or product or marketplace or whatever, you know, you can, you can individually, uh, isolate each one and find a number of startups willing to compete with that particular line of business. Um, that's been true in the U.S. at least for banks, definitely with the fintech uh, uh, newcomers trying to compete away every bank advantage and every bank product. Um, it's starting here with food, and it will spread to other stuff. Yeah, I, I think so. So it's a really good point that you brought up of like, yeah, most of the I, th- that's something that completely went over my head. But most of the new services that are popping up in fintech are just unbundling a lot of the services that traditional banks have and and yeah like i i really like that example of you know going on any bank's landing page nowadays and you can not only see traditional like having a checkings and savings account but there's like tons of different other offerings and services that might be better off if you went to another one of those fintech startups um in terms of like deals for for the customer themselves but um here's a crazy part about the the, the MENA region right um in my opinion, I think that SaaS, the, the most obvious indicator of SaaS being adopted by that region on a wide scale is when the public sector starts using it. So I know that you have a lot of opinions about the public sector and we sort of share frustration of how much it dominates and how little it does. But do you see a future basically where Eventually, if the if if a lot of these dynamics in the F and B industry um, play out and show the rest of the region, the rest of the industries in the region that SaaS is a viable thing and it's a profitable business, and you know, miracle happen, planets align, and the reg the the regulatory obstacles are um, disappeared. Uh, do you see a, a public sector adoption of SaaS or like of SaaS companies that serve the public sector in the media region? Maybe in one or two hundred years, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Look, we'll just be a little behind. I, 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 I'm not looking to the public sector to be sort of a, a bellwether of uh, you know fintech or, or enterprise tech uptake. I, I don't think um, I'm not looking to them for uh, inspiration as to what the next big thing is because they have a whole different set of incentives when they decide what their workflows are. Okay, I'm going to leave it at that. Right. Um, I'm much more interested in, in uh, what, what the private sector is up to because they're more likely to drive innovation than any government demand. Um, kind of mm-hmm. like with uh, you know climate tech, I'm not holding my breath for legislation. I'd like to see what the market does and what they do, you know, with the results of the processes that are ultimately going to reduce carbon output. Um, right. And just you know, kind of going back to the you know bundling versus unbundling life cycle. Um, um, again, again, this is just my commentary on what I believe will be next for the startup ecosystem in the in the MENA region. It's um, okay. So w- we saw what bundling did, and that generated a few exits. We w- we now see what unbundling is doing, and that's generating a lot of investments. I don't think there's an exit yet, but you know, sooner or later, there's bound to be one. Um, right. At, at least with respect to things like like fintech, where this is more evident. When you unbundle someone's bundled service and you build a following for that particular vertical, um, the plan tends to be to start layering on other services to reduce the acquisition cost of each of those successive services and increasing the, you know, the, the, the margins and the LTV and the retention of the users that the first service generated. 
And then they kind of keep on doing that until they find themselves in the place of the people they disrupted in the first place. So, I mean, notice how right. many uh, fintech startups ultimately just start offering checking accounts and, and, and cards and other financial services. Uh, and they're doing it to their loyal users who use their very first unbundled product. It's... Um, oh, it, so, so are you saying that, you know, unbundling and bundling is technically a, a, a cycle of sorts? It, it's sort of a life cycle because, it, I mean, almost every fintech in retrospect today looks like it was just a growth hack to become a bank. Um, right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then, um, um, you know, in, in, in the food sector, like, I don't know, I'm going to prognosticate a little bit now and say, oh, you know, maybe they're going to unbundle so many restaurants that people don't know where to search for them. And then they're going to bundle them and then they're going to create a competitive marketplace. And then we start again, but then it's going to be an additional layer, which is instead of just a marketplace, now you can do some other stuff and extract some more value from the marketplace participants. Maybe it's a three-sided marketplace where the restaurants can also get their, uh, uh, you know, again, get in touch with suppliers and, and resupply themselves again from the same business that they use from the same service provider that they use to reach out to their customers, except the customers obviously don't see the, the supplier side. And then, oh, look, they've cloned Misho. And then the next iteration is going to be something else on top of that. And it's just going to continue. And this is sort of the yeah. cycle of innovation, like, like the, the, the strip away, rebuild and build on top of that type of cycle. Um, yeah, like a more, more of a creative destruction type type of cycle. Yeah, but emphasis on yeah, cycle. I, th I think that right. Yeah, and and, and that's the the beautiful thing about this. Again, back to the whole Molly thing from last episode about me saying beautiful. But um, so so the the what I'm noticing right now is this is happening. Like the whole bundling unbundling thing is happening. Is a cycle. It, it's kind of like a fractal that you you see it on multiple different industries of yeah. you know. Um, Web one was unbundled, web two was bundled and centralized, web three is trying to unbundle it. Um, you see that in GovTech basically where um, people were trying to like decentralize information in, in, in the get-go and then people noticed that um, when, pe when all these different organizations and jurisdictions had their own websites that were posting information, um, if your full-time job was to look at that type of stuff, it it was it was a pain in the ass because you had to scroll through tens if not hundreds of websites to get the same type of data over and over again mm -hmm. so that led to a centralization and who knows in the next couple of in in the next 5 to 10 years if govtech is going to go through a you know if if web3 hits govtech um but it's it's a very interesting pattern that you, you we 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 kind of have to keep an eye on here because not only is it a very nice thing to observe from a distance but even on on top of it, you know, you and I, like you and I, being in the industries and in the space here, um, just being able to use that cycle to not only predict but to hop on future opportunities is going to be a very very golden thing here. Yep, make it rain on that deal flow. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing the rest of the night? Oh man, uh, I so so last episode I was I was going to go pick up um, our you know family. Uh, Ma Ma just started. Uh, Ma was like visiting us and um, finally got just a little bit of a break. So just gonna go out with them, show them around the Venice area, and take them to the to the Amplify offices where we work out of. Um, but yeah, just just kind of a laid back day. Fun fact: I'm actually going to my first ever NFL game tomorrow. 
Ooh, who are you going to see? Uh, the the Rams and the Cardinals uh, at, at SoFi. Um, <laughs> yeah, no no Patriots or, or, or Buccaneers stuff here, sadly. But um, what's what's very nice is that you know SoFi Stadium is actually where LMU had its graduation. So I I was there on the field. Now like getting to see it from a fan's perspective is going to be nice. But on top of it, um, both teams are undefeated right now, and they're basically fighting for first place in their um, in their division. So. Uh, yeah. Yeah, just just uh, gonna go and, and 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 take it all in for sure. Last game I've been to was like October 2015, so six years ago at this point, and it was um, uh, New England and uh, Chicago. I was in Foxborough, in Massachusetts. So so I, I think I, we've been to so many baseball games together. So like the question yeah. is, how does an NFL game differ in terms of like atmosphere? Um, it, it's uh, it, it gets a lot more rowdy. Um, mm. I think, you know, baseball guys or hedge fund guys who just stepped out of their, uh, their, uh, you know, their FIDI office and headed down to Oracle park <laughs> or at t park last time we were there and, uh, right. just wanted to take in the game and, uh, no, I mean, uh, football games are definitely a little more likely to generate violence. <laughs> Not really, <laughs> but, uh, you, you'll see people will be a lot more amped up. I love that. That's, that's, uh. I'm kind of looking forward to it. I don't know. Just being uh, being in a room for the past 18 months, I I, I am yeah. looking for uh, it's a little bit of a of a sign that things are back yeah. to normal, even if there aren't. But yeah. Well, so just a little bit. By the way, if you guys aren't listening, uh, well, back before Mo had a driver's license, um, and he used to visit me <laughs> in the states over the summer because he was still in high school, uh, I used to take him to a lot of baseball games, and most of the time it would be me watching him go after foul balls like a like a golden retriever. <laughs> at the park <laughs> yeah and we'd, we'd come back with like 30 balls from from practice and uh, a couple of dogs would be looking at him uh <laughs> just uh i was uh, ashamed of their own poor performance at the ballpark <laughs> earlier but you know for all yeah, that it, ball game talk i have to go clean my room because i'm boring and an adult so oh well plus i mean you know that's that's the best thing you could do on a what saturday night in kuwait or friday night in kuwait yeah man life of a 30 year old rock star (laughs) but hey um i think i think the we'll 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 see how things play out until the next year or so right yeah Um, well hopefully we can we can uh, go to a dodger game soon yeah and and do this in real life i feel like that would be very very cool um oh yeah yeah okay i thought for a second i thought you were talking about the dodger games like how else were we gonna do it okay um, <laughs> it's Oculus. Yeah, um, yeah that would be fun. No, but yeah, filming a podcast episode would be very nice. But um, yeah, yeah, just uh, looking forward to the to the upcoming week. A lot of fires to put out. Some I know about, some I don't. Um, but yeah, it, it's just been it's 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 been another week as as an early stage founder on I on on my end. And until next week, see you. Later. Later.